Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Black Nativity is an African-American telling of the nativity story based on the song play written by the renowned poet and playwright Langston Hughes. Dominion Entertainment continues the holiday tradition with their 10th annual production of Black Nativity featuring an all-star cast. We'll hear about this spectacular gospel Christmas musical on stage at the First Center from director Robert John Connor and gospel singer Latrice Pace. Stage Door Theater in Dunwoody has another holiday show for the entire family. Twas the Night Before Christmas is based on the beloved poem, but has fun current-day touches such as a mouse that raps. First, an uplifting story from an amazing musician. Blues legend Eric Gales is reclaiming his rightful place at the head of the blues rock table with his new album, Crown. The Grammy-nominated album explores Gales' road to sobriety, redemption, and musical triumph. Eric Gales will perform at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, December 9th, and joins me now via Zoom. Eric Gales, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I am very, very honored to, to be uh, invited to be a part of this uh, interview. And uh, it's, it's really, really awesome. And I'm very, very, very thankful. Thank you. So exciting to have you with us. I know you became interested in guitar at the ripe old age of four, and I read that your brother Eugene taught you to play your guitar upside down and backwards, which is your signature style. Yeah. Why did he teach you that way? Well, actually, it's because they play that way. My brothers play that same way. You know, it actually, you know, wasn't placed into my hands that way. I picked it up that way, and that was what was comfortable to me. You know, so by the time I quote unquote heard that there was a supposed to be a right way to play, if you want to call it that, I was too far into how I was already playing and it was comfortable for me. So I didn't know if I was left handed or right handed that that didn't even cross my mind on if there was a right or wrong way, quote unquote, to play. That's just what what, what felt comfortable to me and just so happened my brothers played that way as well. So it uh, just kept going with it and uh, I kind of liked it. Turns out I had no idea that it was causing such a big frenzy in the world that I was playing an adverse way, if you will, uh, as opposed to the way the majority of the rest of the world played. Uh, I mean, in my, in my mind, I wasn't even aware of Jimi Hendrix at that point uh, at four years old. I just was picking up an instrument that I thought that was cool. And the way that I picked it up was upside down and backwards. And uh, it seemed to work out for me pretty well. <laughs> it seemed to. And speaking of Jimi Hendrix, you were still a teenager in 1992 
when Carlos Santana said you would be the next Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I, I recall that. Yeah, I would think that was quite the compliment. It was really uh, amazing because I met Carlos while we were on tour. We were passing through San Francisco, and I was 17 at the time. And after the show, my tour manager comes to me and tells me, man, there's a guy waiting backstage that wants to meet you, and his name is Carlos Santana. And I was like, man, you know, because we would pay, we would play pranks on each other a lot. And I was, <laughs> you know, like, quit kidding, man. Quit joking around. And I walked backstage, and there's Carlos Santana. He was there, he saw the show, and he he began to start bowing to me. Oh, my. And I was like, wow, man, such, such, this, and this, and that. So we got to know each other, man. And long story short, before we departed each other that day, he asked me, is it okay if he could be my godfather? And I said, absolutely. <gasps> so, oh. you know, all these years, you know, Carlos Santana has been my godfather. And uh, actually, we we text each other and speak at least a couple of times a week. What a beautiful tribute. Yeah, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. But these years have not been easy, and this new album, Crown, has songs which address your struggles with addiction, staying sober, even your personal reflections on racism. Eric, in what ways do you think your early success, I mean, beginning at 16 years old, how did that success impact your struggles with substance abuse? In actuality, it, it really didn't. It, it was when I had some downtime after the second record was when I began to get intrigued with the street life. And, you know, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, so I have a connection to a lot of hip hop and rap groups. You know, there's a very, very enormous rap group out of Memphis, Tennessee called Triple Six Mafia. And uh, they're, they're all good friends of mine. You have, you know, uh, Eight Ball and MJG and Yo Gotti and a, a lot of other artists that come from uh, Memphis that, you know, I begin to uh, do work in that field and, and in that style of music that I began to, you know, do some rapping and stuff like that. And, and I began to get engulfed into all that came along with that. That's where my intrigueness with uh, the street life and drugs and prison and guns and all of that came. And that led to a, you know, almost 30 year stretch of my own, I guess you could say, research into that world. And it still baffles me how I'm not dead and gone because, you know, at least five or six times I, that I can remember, I almost killed myself from just doing way too much and, you know, just different circumstances and situations that I put myself in that I shouldn't even be alive, to be honest with you. But, you know, the gift never left me. And I don't think the big man upstairs felt that my story was ready to be ended. So I thought for the longest that my guitar playing was my purpose in life. Uh, but this many years later, it's come very prevalent to me that my story and my purpose in life is to let everyone that I can bear witness to the, I guess you could say, rising up from the ashes like a phoenix from everything that I've been through and making it on the other side. Because let's just be very, very honest about it. Even personally, I've had friends of mine that has like died in my arms and, you know, took their last breaths in my presence and, you know, things of that nature. And what makes me any different from them, you know, and I'm there doing the same things as they're doing, you know. So that kind of brought the circumference a little bit more closer to me to be in focus that, you know what, Eric, you know, you have a story that the world needs to hear and the music and the guitar playing is just, a cherry on top, if you will. That's not being said in a braggadocious way or anything like that, but that's just a byproduct to help me tell my story. If I could go back in time and have a talk with me, I would try and change my mind and show me what I need. Knock that chip right off that shoulder that you just can't see. So someday... When you're older, 
legacy to be that this guy went through such horrible things and mind you I allowed them to happen by my own hand nobody put a gun to my head and forced me to do drugs and nothing like that this is addiction and if the world uh, there are people that are listening out there that may think that addiction is a game it's not a game it's a very serious 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 illness and it's a sickness and I was sick for quite some time until I finally got tired in 2016, July 15th, um, now a little over six years clean and sober in the moment. You know, I've always had the keys to unlock living life all of this time, but I wouldn't put the key in the keyhole. So now that, you know, I finally got around a very supportive wife that I believe that if there's ever a version of a living, breathing, walking angel, then I found her because she is the one who from day one has said, I believe in you. You know, there are some things my wife grew up in the, in the church and was very naive to a lot of the stuff that happens in the street. So stuff that I would tell her about that come from the street life, she had no idea what I was talking about. So like I was able to live a Jekyll and Hyde life with her for four years. And that wasn't fair to her, you know, when I'm telling her that I'm not, you know, doing things that I'm doing, but I had been doing them severely bad. And she would be the one that have to lay in bed and stay awake and put her finger under my nose to make sure that I was still breathing. But she didn't know what was happening with me. She just knew that her husband was dying in her face in real time over the course of four years. And it just got to a point that she almost just left. I mean, she she truly loved me, but at that point, you know, she had to love herself better to know that, you know what, I love you, Eric, but I can't, it hurts me too bad to sit here and watch you fade away in my face. And something has to happen. So, you know, at that point I said, man, I, I gotta do something different. I'm tired, man, I've tried, I've tried this, my way and it's not working and so i went you know and got some help and it took i mean i i tried to go plenty of times before that but it was for other reasons it wasn't for the reason for myself and i went for myself and uh here i sit with a little over six years that's why i say that i thought that the guitar playing was my purpose in life it's just a way to help me tell my story and i think the world really needs to hear the things that is not impossible to overcome once you know you put that foot forward and give it a full effort and the moment that i decided to give this thing a try things start coming back into my life and things start turning around everything that i i so-called lost in life began to come around in a very short time i mean within within six years here's my first grammy nomination within four years here's my first and second Blues Music Award, two years in a row, back to back. Just all kinds of uh, people that had to distance themselves from me because I was so chaotic began to come back into my life. And I tell this same story before I play any note at every show. So I let the crowd know that you're dealing with and who you're watching tonight is a human being that is perfectly flawed. And I stand uh, in front of you performing my show with a daily struggle. And I stand in front of you playing everything that I'm playing for you from a point of severe pain. But if that pain is enough for one person in the audience to leave my show saying that, wow, that guy been through all that and he just sat there and let it all out and he cried like a grown man, should not be ashamed to do and was vulnerable enough to let me know about who he was, who he is as a human being and not just seeing me as the entertainer in which they probably played their, paid their money to come and see. And I don't deny the audience of that, but I also give them something that they didn't expect to see. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Grammy-nominated blues guitarist Eric Gales. 
Your wonderful wife, Madonna Gales, <laughs> yes, is also very talented, and she's featured on the album Crown, uh, oh, singing yes. Take Me Just As I Am. Yes, now, she has been your backup vocalist and percussionist for several years. Yes. Eric, what was it like to swap roles for this song? It was actually amazing because I always knew that she had an awesome, very powerful, strong voice. With that being said, you know, she has never wanted to be in the forefront. She's been very content with her vantage point from playing in the background and this and this and that. But me and Joe and Josh Smith got together on this record and said, you know, Joe said, look, man, we have to feature your wife, LaDonna, on a song. There's just too much power there, and the world needs to hear this. us on it. She really didn't want to do it until she came in and said, okay, and would you look at it? Now it's part of a Grammy-nominated record, and, uh, you know, things are just happening wonderful. We're having such a wonderful time doing these songs live and performing this material. That's why I can't wait to get there to Buckhead and perform and show you guys, you know, what we bring to the table as far as this emotion and this passion and this energy and just swapping back and forth good energy with good people out there. And for the two hours that uh, we're on this stage, our intent is to make the audience not think about any of the bills that they have to pay, any of the worries <laughs> that's of the world, just all of us be on one accord, all walks, all kinds of life, all, all genders, all preferences, it doesn't matter. In that room, all I see is one thing, and that's a human race. And if anybody is in that room that doesn't think that way, then you're part of the problem. So with that being said, that's the overall message that Eric Gills is trying to get across. And I don't think it's a bad message. I think it's an awesome message. And I think that uh, once the world get a combination of my story and the show, I hope that they leave their feeling fully fed from the buffet of music that we have provided for them. Eric, you've mentioned Joe twice. The blues guitarist Joe Bonamassa produced this album. You two have known each other since you were teenagers. Yes, ma'am. Now, although your career paths went in two different directions early on, you reconnected in 2019. What was it like to come together to create this album decades later? I tell you, you know what? It was like we had never been apart. We got together and it was one common goal to just put the best Eric Gill's record out that we could do. And I honestly can sit back and look at this record and say, you know what? We did a fan. That's a stellar job that everybody's input uh, involved in this record. Kev Moe, to Tom Hangridge, to James House, to my wife, LaDonna, to Josh Smith, and, and Joe Bonamassa and myself. We got together and wrote, you know, material that uh, had some substance to it. And it was not about just the guitar playing. It was about the lyric and vocal content and making sure that my singing was stepping up to another tier than the previous 17 records. And, you know, making a statement with this record, you know, musically, vocally, message, concept, everything, and stepping back from it and listening to it, you know, from Survivor to I Found Her to Take Me As I Am to You Don't Know the Blues to Stand Up, The Storm, you know, everything, let me start with this. Everything that's in this record has a significance to, you know, some part of my heart. And, uh, it's just really exhilarating to see recognition from even to this point, just 
you know, making it to be nominated from this record that we put such hard work into. And we, that wasn't the day that went by every day that we were tracking this record that at some point we all cried like babies because of the messages that were happening. I mean, you have to understand we were recording this record amid the pandemic. We were recording this record amid the pandemic along with the heavy cloud of racism that had been rearing its head during this whole Trump situation that had brought about this divide, if you will. Now, mind you, I wanted to be understood that I didn't say nothing bad about Trump, regardless of my personal feelings about him. But during that era, it was a seriously racial divide that was happening. So what is the other hidden message is that there is a black guy, myself, and Joe Bonamassa, a white guy, that got together and made such a beautiful product happen, where at the time being, it was being so divided that black and white shouldn't be, and, and there's no way, and you stay over there, and you stay over there. How was that part? Don't tell me it can't be done, because look at what me and Joe Bonamassa just did. And you did it with humor. Exactly. I mean, you've got to talk about this music video where <laughs> you have a guitar battle in a boxing ring. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's hilarious. I mean, we're talking about some serious shredding and no violence whatsoever. No, no punching in that ring. Not at all. The whole image of that, I had a dream about that video and the director, Nathan, done a great job on helping my dream come to reality and i uh, told joe about it and he said i love it i love it man because how this all stemmed was from joe invited me on his cruise on this joe bonamassa cruise and i played on one of his songs and they kind of call it the battle of the century on uh the battle of john henry is the name of that song but in the world's eyes, it looks like it was a guitar battle. But in me and Joe's eyes, it was just simply two best friends having a conversation. And that's what the whole overall concept of that was. Tired of being in the backseat, I bought my crown. Tired of just making ends meet, y'all, I bought my crown. winner was neither one of us in that video. The winner was the consumer. The winner was the fans. The winner was the people that got to, you know, see Eric Gales and Joe Bonamassa finally get together and just swap back and forth some really dope, nice energy <laughs> uh, as good friends. And that's what, it, that's what it was all about. And Kev Mo was just the add to, to, to the boot as the referee. So it was so fun to do that, and uh, I think we accomplished it very well. Oh, you did indeed, and it is great fun to watch. Eric Gales, congratulations on this Grammy nomination, on your marvelous music, on your wonderful marriage, and on how far you have come. You have earned your crown. Oh, thank you so much. That means the world to me. That really does mean the world to me. And every avenue and opportunity that I have to, you know, tell my story again on any platform that it is, I'm very thankful and I'm very, very honored. And uh, I just really want to thank you for your time and, and, and allowing me to uh, uh, be able to tell my story. Blues legend and guitarist Eric Gale. He's performing at the Buckhead Theater this Friday, December 9th. More information about his performance and Grammy-nominated album Crown is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Black Nativity a gospel Christmas musical experience is returning to Georgia Tech's first center for the arts, and we'll speak with creatives behind the show. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Mary, Mary, what you gonna name that pretty little baby? Pretty little baby. One of Atlanta's most spectacular holiday traditions returns this year with Black Nativity a gospel Christmas musical experience. On stage at the First Center for the Arts through December 18th, the production presents the Christian Bible's nativity story through song, dance, poetry, and scripture with a cast of nationally renowned performers. One of them, Gospel singer Latrice Pace joins us now via Zoom along with the director of Black Nativity, Robert John Connor. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, likewise. Now, Black Nativity is in its 10th year as a production of Dominion Entertainment a huge Atlanta event with a large cast of dancers, singers, actors, and orators to match. Robert, how is the story of Christmas told through gospel music in this show? Well, the actual word gospel is basically says telling the good news of Christ. And so what a better way to tell the story, but through gospel music, which is rooted in the African and African-American tradition. And so uh, the history of Black Nativity goes well beyond the 10 years that we've been able to produce it. Uh, Black Nativity, of course, originated under the pen of Langston Hughes, who in the early 60s created this, what he coined a song play, that was, I guess, his response artistically to how things were changing in American society, how African-Americans began to see themselves in all things that they do, including how they worship their God and through Christianity. And so after it debuted on Broadway in 1961, it became a staple in a lot of the major cities in the African-American community, because oftentimes we were excluded from, you know, certain events and certain artistic things. And so it was a way of saying, hey, here we are, here's our representation, and here's what we believe, and this is how we represent that. And so now fast forward, 60 years later, we are still continuing the tradition of presenting Black Nativity uh, here in Atlanta, and it has become a holiday tradition for all walks of life, all cultures, because of the beautiful and glorious costumes and the, the magnificent music and dance. And it, it just is a really great way to usher in the season for Christians and even non-Christians who just enjoy the splendor of the music, the dance, and the costumes. Mm. How has Langston Hughes's Black Nativity evolved over its decades of performance? It has really evolved. When he first presented Black Nativity, a lot of 
the music was traditional spirituals and traditional African-American gospel songs rooted in the African-American church during that time. What we have done is we've kind of put a spin on it. We've evolved it. We've adapted it. And so we do keep those anchor traditional songs because we feel like those are important to our history. And then we have built upon that with new repertoire and original repertoire. So when an audience member comes to see our show, they're going to see to hear traditional African-American music. They're going to hear spirituals. They're going to hear contemporary music. They're going to hear the myriad of styles of music that African-Americans present, even through a classical idiom. And so it's kind of evolved to kind of keep up with the times and audiences have grown to love that. Mm. Latrice, you've performed in Black Nativity several times as the church lady known as Sister Frankly. Would, Would you tell us about her character? Sister Frankly is simply my mother. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like true, through and through, it is just simply my mother. I grew up in a very strict Pentecostal home. And it was the type where, you know, you were going to church on Sunday morning and you were going to go to Sunday school prior to Sunday morning service. And when you got to service, you're not going to go to sleep. You're going to pay attention. So Sister Frankly is my mother and she's that mother that, kind of co-pastors unofficially (laughs) (laughs) Uh, without the pastor's permission or knowing or knowledge she just kind of makes sure everybody stays in line she tried she makes sure everybody is dressing accordingly even though we have some that are pushing the envelope like some of the younger people you know they want to wear their short skirts or their slits or whatever but uh she just kind of makes sure the message of the gospel stays within the church and it it doesn't go too far with everybody trying to evolve and claim this, this, I guess, so-called new freedom that the church tends to have, have as the years progress. So that's sister, frankly, the spiritual head. (laughs) I agree. Sister, frankly, represents church tradition. She represents, she's the matriarch of the church she is an elder of the church that the church has grown to to love and respect, but she does not mince her words. And as she has gotten older, she cares a little less about what people think about what she has to say. <laughs> is, isn't that wonderful? It is. Oh my, <laughs> I, get, I get away with everything during that show. <laughs> I love it. The Black Nativity cast includes a number of returning voices, all of them gospel stars and great singers, Miss Pace among them, of course. Thank you. Among them is Jojo Clark, whom our audience might remember as a contestant on this year's America's Got Talent. Yes. He achieved semi-finalist status yes. in a duo with his niece, Brie. Yes. How will theatergoers experience JoJo's powerful voice on display in Black Nativity? Uh, JoJo came to us unsolicited. He showed up at our audition, and when he walked in the door, I said, you're the guy from America's Got Talent. because if you immediately when you see him the first thing you notice is his incredibly ample stature yes he is a mountain of a guy yes and just also a mountain of joy and kindness absolutely yeah and he joined us last year and has done two stints on America's Got Talent And, you know, as a professional nationally recognized artist, you know, they have opportunities, but he was very adamant that he had made a family with Black Nativity and he's returned and he is just an incredible, incredible performer. Latrice could say more about it, I'm sure. Yes, it's just awesome. He never ceased to amaze me. It's like every rehearsal he taps 
into to something different. He always giving you something more. And even though the rehearsal process is that time to experiment and be creative, it just never he is is boundless with him. He has no boundaries to his, to what his vocal ability can do. So not only will they enjoy him, they will literally be mesmerized with his vocal ability, the control, the agility. He's just absolutely amazing, along with his personality and his character. It all exudes through from the stage. It's 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 incredible, literally. What character does he portray? He is one of the kings. Uh-huh. So the tradition of the Black Nativity that I have grown to be accustomed to years ago when I actually was one of the kings, uh, I started as a singer before I got into producing and directing. There are three kings, of course, in the Bible story that happen upon the manger. And in the Black Nativity, that moment has always been such a profound musical moment. And it's always very important that we find the ideal artists to fill those particular slots. And so along with Jojo, uh, we have Chris Hagen, who is an incredible, legendary Atlanta vocalist and another newcomer to us, Mr. Darius Polk, who is a Malico gospel recording artist, and they all will be playing the Kings along with Jojo. And what we honor in that moment is the, the trio singing and traditional worship music and that moment is actually the highlight of the show so if you have not seen the black nativity uh, just for that moment alone it's worth <laughs> to take a, a chance to come check us out because it's just they just create such a beautiful moment on stage I don't know Rob it's the moment with the kings and the shepherds I, I don't know it's it's a toss for me <laughs> yeah, the shepherds are, the shepherds moment is good too you're right there's so many good moments out you know there's... so many well that leads me to ask Latrice is that your standout musical moment is that what we should be prepared for or or look forward to what's your favorite song to participate in? Lois, it's literally hard to say. I love the moment with the shepherdsmen. I love the moment with the kingsmen. I also love the moment once Christ is born and we are all just gathered around and singing and worshiping him. There are just so many pivotal moments in this show that will not, you know how sometimes you can experience a show and you have so many pivotal moments where the ride kind of exhausts you. You will not get exhausted because each musical moment offers something different. And it actually just, one moment gets better than the next. And it is literally a climax. So so I'm, I can't. And that's what really speaks to the show because it touches so many segments of musical tastes. And, and let's not forget the incredible dancing that goes yes, on. Yes. So it is a potpourri. It is a jambalaya of African and African-American goodness that speaks yes. universally, right? It's not encompassing or so specific that if you come from a different walk of life or background, you can't appreciate it. We, you know, we, our audience have grown to be so diverse because it ultimately is a celebration. We had a Muslim come last year who just came because yeah. his friend told him to can't come. And he spoke so profoundly about how impactful this performance by Christians was to him. Yeah. So uh, the dancing is just breathtaking. Let her Director Robert John Connor and cast member Latrice Pace. Black Nativity, 
A gospel Christmas musical experience is on stage through December 18th at the first Center for the Arts on the campus of Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear how Stage Door Theater's Twas the Night Before Christmas incorporates wrapping mice into their new production. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. One of the oldest and most popular Christmas poems is A Visit from St. Nicholas, usually referred to as Twas the Night Before Christmas, a family production based on the poem's story is playing at Stage Door Theater in Dunwoody through December 18th. Joining me now via Zoom is the director, Damien Lockhart, and producing artistic director, Justin Ball. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so Hi, much. Hi, Lois. Thanks so much for having us. This is for each of you. Before this production, what was your experience with the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas? For me, the first experience, or the earliest experience that I can think of, of hearing the poem is actually in the intro of Silent Night by The Temptations. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. In my mind. staple Christmas song in my house growing up and in the beginning of it one of the group members does a portion of Twas the Night Before Christmas and so that really kind of sparked my my curiosity as like what is this poem and why is it so so interesting and then you know you hear it more and more as you um, grow up but that was my first memory of hearing that story. How special (laughs) Motown St. Nick comes in comes in on a car now, I don't suppose a Detroit automobile could fit through the chimney, but hey, it's make-believe. <laughs> and who could argue with the temptations doing anything? Exactly. Justin? So, you know, I certainly remember hearing Twas the Night Before Christmas as a child, but um, it's recently uh, sort of come back into my life. Uh, I'm a, a proud father of a, a six-year-old daughter Aww. named Josephine, and so we've been reciting it the last couple of years, and she can do it by heart at this point. So I I think that's why it it has a special place for me right now. So sweet. So would you give us a synopsis of this version, which is a play by Ken Ludwig, this version of Twas the Night Before Christmas? Sure, yeah. So we're setting it in Atlanta, and it basically follows a young girl named Emily. She's really spunky, and her best friend Amos as they go and try to save Christmas. They discover that Santa has skipped their house last Christmas, and there's a lovely elf friend that comes in and asks of their help so that she can help save Christmas, and and Santa can hit all the houses in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. What is their reaction when they discover they've been omitted from both lists, the naughty and nice? They are not too happy about that at all. So they are very (laughs) excited to go and save Christmas and get on the list and get those presents from Santa for sure. So there's a lot of fun musical, not musical, but music moments and some fun just family audience interaction um, as well to join us on the story and, and to help the kids save the day. You mentioned that this is set in Atlanta. Are there 
other changes Stage Door made to this production of Ken Ludwig's play? Yeah, there were a few adjustments, I will say, that were made. Traditionally, I think the play is set in Vermont, so it's in the northern area where it's a little snowy. We do know now Atlanta can get snow because of snowpocalypse, so that's not an issue, but we adjusted it to where Atlanta is a little snowy town. We also included some steampunk aesthetic into it as well. I was really inspired by the movie on Netflix, Jingle Jangle. It premiered a few years ago around the time of the quarantine was going on, and that really revitalize my love for Christmas. And so I was very inspired by that and wanted to implement some of those elements into this version of Twas the Night Before Christmas. And I think we came up with something that is otherworldly, but still feels timeless in a sense. Hmm. That steampunk sensibility would fit with the time when the poem was written, which was early to mid 19th century. Yes. Yeah. Justin, what are some of your favorite songs in the show? Well, one of the the things that I'm I'm most pleased about Damien's vision for this this production is he took some of Ken Ludwig's lyrics and actually um turned them into raps. So there's some really uh, exciting moments where Emily and Amos, who is uh, the mouse character, are actually rapping to the audience <laughs> and it is wildly fun. Oh, I love the idea of a rapping mouse. <laughs> I, I was curious about the qualifications actors need to perform or even audition to perform in Stage Doors productions. Well, Stage Door, this season, we are op- have open auditions for every one of our shows this season. We're really proud to invite as many Atlanta artists as possible to participate. We had a really wonderful turnout for Twas the Night Before Christmas. Uh, Damien and I sat through hours of auditions, and then he whittled it down to a group of callbacks. And then, and then we picked these five incredible artists who all have varied backgrounds and training, but it's a really remarkable group of artists that Damien's put together. Originally... Stage Door Theater was community theater, correct? That is correct. And now, how would you describe it? Semi-professional? Professional? Absolutely, yeah. We I, we are using the term semi-professional right now. Um, we pay every artist that works at Stage Door, whether it's a designer, director, stage manager, actor, understudy. You know, it's it's certainly not union wages at this point, but we are we are working towards towards a more professional model. But so right now, yeah, I would I would consider us a semi-professional. Looking over Ken Ludwig's output, I mean, this playwright is just a factory of hits himself and musicals as well. What aspects of this version of Twas the Night Before Christmas do you two especially especially enjoy presenting for the Atlanta audience. You know, one of the reasons that we picked this show in our season is, you know, as Lois mentioned, for for a long time, we were a community theater and we were really geared towards an an adult audience. And one of my goals um, when I came into this organization a year ago um, is to pick programming that invites everybody in the Atlanta community to stage door. So it was really important that we start picking some shows in our season um, that were applicable for the whole family so that kids and grandparents can come can come together around the holidays to, to celebrate live theater. So what I love about this production is that Damien has found such joy and humor and silliness in this production that I think everyone will be tickled when they come to see it. They will be immediately put in the holiday spirit. Wonderful. For me, I think... Well, I have to preface this with a with a little anecdote. So I started out doing theater, like doing children's theater when I was doing theater at the Springer Theater Academy. So that's where I cut my teeth. So when 
the script landed in my email inbox, I was very excited because it brought back those memories of doing children's theater and doing theater for families. Now, don't get me wrong, the nitty gritty theater is a lot of fun too, but every now and then you do, you want that palate cleanser that allows you to just be creative and have fun and explore and create something that's magical and memorable for a child. So that's what I, that was my goal was to create family memories for Dunwoody in Atlanta that will last for years to come. Director Damien Lockhart and Artistic Director Justin Ball. Stage Door Theater's production of Twas the Night Before Christmas is underway in Dunwoody through December 18th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. How a nice Jewish boy from Westchester ran away with the circus is at the heart of Mark Endick's solo show, Death-Defying Shtick. The Flying Carpet Theater Company will host a free reading of its production in the auditorium of the Bremen Museum on Sunday at 2 p.m. Here's Mark Endick on his life as a clown. I'm a professional circus clown. Uh, and I've been doing routines and gags and bits for over 25 years under the big top. My mom would actually want me to tell you that I'm probably one of the only featured performers to have performed in the, the major American circuses. Some people call it the trifecta of circuses, meaning Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, Cirque du Soleil and Big Apple Circus. And in and, and this show, I do a lot of my classic routines that I've done for over 25 years in front of thousands of people. And I actually mix that up with doing some storytelling about how I got into this crazy job, telling you about my family and my mentors and things like that. And some other huge losses and challenges through my life that have made me the clown <laughs> that I am now. I do think this this show is going to be relatable to even if you're not, if you don't really care about the circus, maybe you've never even been to a circus. It really hangs on my life story, my, my true life, how I was a, you know, a lawyer's kid in New York suburbs and ran away to join the circus to, to chase my dreams. More information and how to reserve tickets is on the website flyingcarpettheater.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., a conversation with Anthony Mordechai Tzvi Russell, a Jew by choice, an opera singer by training, and a Yiddish singer by calling. He'll perform at Temple Beth Tikva in Roswell this Sunday. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.